Turn in the Word of God, if you would, to the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 8. Romans 8 has been called the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, that all the Bible is good, but Romans 8 is particularly good. I just finished a 13-part series on Romans 8 for my congregation in Lethbridge. And this evening I want to read the verses 31 through 39, but we're going to look at particularly verse 32. So Romans 8, 31 to 39, and this is the word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God In Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the word of God. I don't think there are any Christians who doubt the kindness and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, he is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But I'm not convinced that Christians are equally confident about the love of God the Father. John Owen, writing back in the 1600s, said that uh, there are many Christians who entertain harsh thoughts of God the Father, who think that if there's any kindness at all in him, it's a kindness that has been purchased by the death of Christ his Son. That is to say, if God had his druthers, he'd wipe us out and have nothing to do with us. But somehow, because of what Christ has done, he feels compelled to at least tolerate us, to be kind to us. He kind of does it with his arm twisted behind his back, so to speak. Well, here in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul blasts that lie of Satan. Because that's really what it is, isn't it? When we have hardships and difficulties in our life, it's our enemy who comes at us to unsettle us. And one of his chief attacks against us is to make us wonder whether God really loves us. Because if he did, of course, these things that are unsettling us would never happen. That's, that's exactly what Satan did at the beginning in the garden when he cast aspersions, he cast doubt on the character of God, tried to portray God to Adam and Eve, or Eve in particular, as, as a God who was somewhat stingy, who was holding back something from Adam and Eve that would be for their good. And because that attack worked so well back then, 
That is the attack that Satan continues to use in this day. Is God really for you? And the Apostle Paul, I say here, is blasting that lie of Satan completely as he demonstrates for us that everything that happens to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ flows from a heart of love and affection, a heart of the Father that is capacious, that is massive, and full of tender love and mercy for his children. So what I really want to do this evening is look at uh, verse 32. First of all, see what God didn't do. Secondly, to notice what God did do. And then thirdly, to draw out the implication that the Apostle Paul himself draws out uh, when he contemplates the glorious mystery of the gospel. So what is it that God did not do? Well, Paul starts us off in verse 32 with these words, that God is the one, that is God the Father is the one, who did not spare his own son. Now, I think we can get some help in understanding the depth of what Paul is saying by looking at some of the uses of that word in the Old Testament scriptures, not in the Hebrew scriptures, nor in the English scriptures per se, but in the scriptures that the apostle Paul would have used, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. And the first passage I want to refer you to is found in Deuteronomy 7. If you know that chapter, you know the Lord is speaking about when Israel is going to come into the land of Canaan. There are going to be nations there, seven nations, bigger and stronger than the Israelites, but most significantly, wicked nations. And God says that Israel was to be the, his executioner, that they were to wipe them out, to consume them completely, to have nothing to do with it, to destroy them utterly because of their high-handed and persistent sin against the God of gods. And this is what God says there in Deuteronomy 7, verse 16. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Now, here's the phrase that's translated in the Greek, your eye shall not spare them. The ESV says, your eye shall not pity them. That is, don't hold anything back. Show no mercy to them. Give them what they deserve. Destroy them because they are worthy of destruction and guilty of arrogance against God. So there, the word spare is used with the connection that they ought not to be spared because of their guilt. We come across that word again in 2 Samuel 18. You'll know that story. Absalom, the son of David, has just usurped the throne. He has uh, rebelled against his father, both politically and familially. And uh, so now uh, the supporters of David are about to go to war against Absalom and his crew. And as the commanders pass by David, David says to them, he says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. That is, spare for my sake the young man Absalom. Now, David was fully aware of what kind of heinous crime Absalom had done, that he was a scoundrel, that he deserved to be punished because of his rebellion against his king and his father, against the Lord's anointed. And yet, he says, I know what he's done and I ask you, for my sake, if you would just spare him. He is guilty. He deserves to die. But for my sake, will you not 
spare him. And then the last one I want to look through, uh, look at is in the prophet of Joel. There, Joel is calling on the people of God to return to the Lord with all their heart. He's reminding them that the God to whom they should return is a God who's full of grace and mercy, and he will undoubtedly receive them. And it's like he anticipates a question. Well, when we come back to God after our incessant sin and persistent rebellion, what do we say to God? What are the words that we take upon our lips? What do we ask God? And Joel says, this is what you say. You say, spare your people, O Lord. You see, in the Old Testament, the word spare is most often used in the context of guilt. The Israelites are to destroy the nations because they're guilty. They're not, they're not to spare them. Uh, Absalom is guilty, but David asks that he be spared. The Israelites are guilty, but in their return to the Lord, they ask for mercy. Now, here's the striking thing. Because here we read in Romans 8 that God did not spare his own son. And so you think, If spare, that word spare, is only used in the context of guilt, then it's out of place here. What do you mean God did not spare his own son? Of course, he didn't need to be uh, sparing his own son because his son had done nothing wrong. His son had been faithful, unstinting in in his obedience. He did not swerve to the right hand or to the left. Whatever his father's will was, that was his food and drink. So why are we talking about God not sparing his own son as if his son deserved to have judgment thrust upon him? What is going on here? Well, in order to understand this, we need to go back before the foundations of the world in eternity past. In that conversation among the three persons of the Trinity who lived with one another in mutual love and affection, seeking each other's glory, longing uh, to share the blessed experience that they have with creatures. And, and there, as God contemplates uh, sinners who had fallen into sin, God the Father appoints Christ the Son to be the sacrifice for sin. That Christ is going to be the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. That Christ was going to be the chosen. The second person of the Trinity was going to be chosen uh, as the sacrifice for sin, as the offering for sin. And so our Lord Jesus comes to earth. Since we have flesh, he took upon himself our flesh, became like us in every way, sin accepted. That's important to understand. He came to be like us in every way, sin accepted. And then he goes to the cross. And it seems so inappropriate that the Holy Son of God should go to the cross. So, so what is he doing on the cross? Well, he goes there as a substitute for sinners. He goes there as the one who is guilty. no as the one who is considered guilty for the sins of his people. So that our Lord Jesus Christ took responsibility for all the sins of his own, all their idolatry, all their adultery, 
all their greed, all their covetousness, all their theft, every imaginable sin that his people commit, the Lord Jesus Christ took responsibility for them so that on the cross he was considered the greatest sinner that this world has ever known. He went to the cross, innocent yet considered guilty. Remember Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us. And it was in that context, as Christ is on the cross, bearing the sins of his people, that God did not spare his own son. But he let his son have the full fury of his wrath against sin. Some of you young boys like to wrestle with your daddies. And uh, you think sometimes that uh, when you're wrestling that you're actually quite evenly matched. And you think just a little bit longer and I'll be able to take him down. But the reality is, is that your daddy's going easy on you. At least that's what I did with my boys when they were younger. Now I don't even try anymore because I'm afraid. I think I still can take them down, but I'm afraid that I might not be able to and the tables will be turned. But when they were young, I didn't let them have my full strength. I held back. I would punch them, but only lightly. I would throw them to the ground, but only softly. I spared my children. And your daddy is sparing you too, I'll have you know. But when it comes to the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ was not spared. That God the Father did not dilute his wrath against his son. It wasn't judgment light for his son. He didn't hold back the punches. He didn't minimize the judgment. He let him have it full strength. God did not spare his own son. And that's a striking thing. And what makes it all the more striking is that it was his firstborn son, his favorite of all his children, his his natural son. All Christians are, are sons of God by adoption, but, but not our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he was the, the natural, the eternally begotten son of God. And, and yet, though he was his special son, the, the one whom he loved, the one with whom he was well pleased, he did not, he did not spare his own son. And what is even more striking is that he did not spare his own son, even though his son asked to be spared. Do you remember that uh, holy ground uh, in, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion as our Lord is contemplating what it would be like for him to undergo the wrath and curse of God? It says that he staggers to the ground overwhelmed in his soul because of what is coming up. He prayed that his father would take the cup from him. Really what he was praying is, Father, if it is your will, will you not spare me? Will you not lighten the load? Will you not pull back? Will you not have mercy upon me and and not punish me with the wrath that sin deserves? Father, will you not spare me? And though the son asked his father, it was his father's will to crush him. 
it pleased his father to punish him. He did not spare his own son. And what's more, he did not find a substitute for him. You remember that uh, very moving story in Genesis 22 when Abram is told by God to take his son, his son Isaac, to go to a mountain that God would show him and on that mountain to sacrifice his son. And Abram in obedience goes. And as Isaac and Abram are walking up the mountain, Isaac says, the wood and the fire, my father. But where is the lamb for the offering? Ah, the Lord will provide a lamb, my son. And up they trudge the mountain. They arrive at the summit, and Abram lays the, the stonework for the altar, places the wood upon it. And then he says, son, you're the offering. You're the sacrifice. And he ties his son Isaac on the altar. And then he raises his knife to plunge it into his son. And there was a voice, Abram, Abram, do not kill your son. And then God says, now I know that you feared God because you did not spare your son. And then there was a ram provided for Isaac so that Isaac could go free and the judgment would fall on that substitute. But for our Lord Jesus, there was no substitute. There was no just-in-time replacement. There was no voice saying to the Father, Father, do not do that to your son. He served you faithfully. Don't do it to your son. No. The Father plunged the sword of his wrath into his son. God did not spare his own son. That's what Paul says God didn't do. Well, what did God do? Well, Paul goes on to say that God gave him up. And the word that Paul uses is the Greek word paradidomi, for your interest's sake. But it's a, it's a word that's used numerous times within the context of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in Matthew's gospel. It means, or it's translated in a variety of ways, delivered up, handed over, betrayed, given into the hands of. And so listen to uh, what Jesus says to his disciples. You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be me will be delivered up to be crucified. And then when he's at supper with his disciples, uh, uh, he tells, says that uh, there is going to be someone, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, parodidomi, me. And we know who it is because one of the 12, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and says, what will, what will you give me if I deliver, if I give him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And so that's the word that's used, uh, parobididomi. Judas is going to betray the Lord Jesus Christ, to give him up. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says to his disciples, see the hours at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then we read in chapter 27 that when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. 
and they bound him and led him away and paradidomied him, delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And then we read later that Pilate uh, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him, paradidomied him to be crucified. And so it's a word that is closely associated with the death and the betrayal and the giving up of our Lord Jesus Christ for sinners. And it makes sense at one level, I suppose, that that Judas would uh, be the subject of the word, that Judas would betray the Lord Jesus, because we know Judas is greedy. He loves money and had no real affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes sense at one level for the Jews to hand Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified because they were envious of his popularity and had no affection for him because they never recognized him as their promised Messiah, the the long-awaited, the one the scriptures had spoken about. It it makes sense that, that Pilate, would hand Jesus over to the Romans because we know that Pilate was a a weak leader. He vacillated. He wanted the approval of the crowds. And as they clamored for Jesus' death, Pilate longed to pacify the crowds. And so he handed Jesus over. So we can see why Judas does, because he's greedy. Why the Jews do, because they're envious. Why Pilate does, because he's weak. But the striking thing again here in Romans 8 is that it's God the Father who is the subject of the verb handed over, that it is God who gave up his son, that God is the one who delivered his son into the hands of sinners so that even though it was the Jews and Judas and the Romans, wicked men who put Jesus to death behind all of the intricacies of human involvement is the colossal figure of God the Father, He is the one who gave his son. It's not just that he sat idly by while all these wicked people uh, uh, did their intrigue against his son. No, it's God who delivered his son to death. That's what Paul is saying. That's what God did. He did spare his son. What did he do? He actually gave him up for us all. Now, we need to be very careful here because we don't want to misunderstand anything here. Because you might think that the father had something against the son, that perhaps he was angry with him or or wasn't pleased with him any longer, or that the son had had, uh, tried his patience and finally God gives him up. But that should, should be blasphemous even to think about, really, because the father loved his son. There was no breach in the Trinity. There was no tearing apart of the fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in this grand event of the cross. We shouldn't think that. And nor should we think that the Son was unwilling to go to the cross, that somehow the Father compelled him. Not at all. The the Lord Jesus did not want to go to the cross. That's true enough. That's why he prayed to be spared. Take this cup from me. But of course he had to pray that because there there was no way in his holy humanity that Jesus could wish to be cursed by his father. So of course he had to pray that. That prayer was an expression of his love and affection. He wanted no distancing from his father at all. 
But remember that this word used of Jesus, or used rather of Judas and the Jews and of Pilate, this word used of God the Father who gave up his son, is also used of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's marvelous, really. It's remarkable. But not only did the, the Jews and Judas and Pilate hand Jesus over, but the Lord Jesus himself loved me and gave himself, parodidomied himself for me, Paul says in Galatians 2. That's the sheer wonder of the cross, that the Father and the Son loved one another. The Father loved the Son even while he was cursing the Son. Can you wrap your mind around that? And the Son loved his Father even while his father was condemning him and forsaking him. It's a mystery, but, but remember what Jesus said in John ten seventeen. The reason my father loves me is because I lay down my life for the sheep. So, so that you know, at the beginning of Jesus' life, it said that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And that the longer Jesus lived, the more enamored the father was with him because of his devotion, his godliness and his character and and his faithfulness to his call. But on the cross was the height of the father's love. I've asked you, my son, to be the sacrifice for sinners, to undergo my judgment against sin. And you, my son, have said you would if ever I loved you, Jesus. It's now. So in that transaction on the cross, when the father did not spare his own son, and when he instead gave him up for us all, there was such deep affection between the father and the son and the son and the father. Such love in this wonderful transaction for sinners. Because that's what Paul says it was for. He gave them up for us all. You might have heard, I'm sure I quoted it here before, the words of Octavius Winslow. He asked the question, who delivered up Jesus to death? And he says, not the Jews for envy, not Judas for money, not Pilate for weakness, but the Father for love. And I would improve on that, though I hesitate to improve on Winslow. And I would say, not only the Father for love, but the Son for love. Not simply because the Son loves us, though He does, but because the Son loves His Father and wishes to please Him in every way. God did not spare His own Son. His own Son. But God gave him up for us all. That's for us he's done so. That is, he did not spare his own son so that he would spare us the wrath and the curse that we deserve. He gave up his son so that he would not have to give us up to the judgment that sin deserves. It's sheer wonder. It's why C.H. Spurgeon says that uh, when you look at the cross, you're sometimes tempted to ask, 
do you mean you love me more than you love him? Of course it's not true. He couldn't love his son anymore. But it's the exquisite wonder that the father would give up his son and not spare him. For my sake, it beggars explanation. And then notice what Paul does with that. He says, uh, if God has done that, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God has given you his best, will he not then give you the rest? Everything you need for this life and for the life to come, everything you need to live for the glory of God, everything you need to to, uh, protect yourself against the attacks of the evil one. If God has given you his son, he'll give you everything else that you need. What is it that you need? Do you need a right standing before God so that your sins are no longer held against you? Check, you've got it. Do you need the Holy Spirit to strengthen you in your fight against sin? He's yours, you've got it. Do you need encouragement in the midst of discouragement, strengthening in the midst of dismay? It's yours. You've got it. What do you need? You ask for anything you need, and it's yours because God the Father has committed himself to giving you his son. It would be sheer folly now to hold back anything from you. Whatever you need, whatever it will take to get you home, you'll get Because the Father loves you, and the Father is generous, and his heart is massive, and he's not stingy in any way. You can never accuse him of parsimony. He's extravagant in his love. How do you know? Because he gave you his son. That's how you know. And if he's given you his son, he will graciously, freely give you everything else as well. But notice what Paul says, and I think this is significant. He doesn't just say, how will he not also graciously give us all things? But he says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's profoundly significant. It's not that he gives you all things apart from Christ, or that he gives you all things in addition to Christ, so that you get Christ plus you get everything else. No, you get everything with Christ. So the, the, the center of God's good intentions for you is found only in Jesus Christ. So that God never wants you to think about him apart from his dear son, so that you should not expect any blessing from God unless it comes through his son, Jesus Christ. He is the mediator of every grace to you so that you will get whatever you need with him for your blessing and God's glory. A number of years ago, a long time ago, I was in Suriname, South America, with my wife, Lucy. We spent a month there, and we got friendly with a Saramakan Christian. His name was Johan. And uh, we spent a week with him in the jungle, he and his fiancée, Malda. And uh, 
we got friendly with them. They watched us for the whole week. And at the end of the week, they said, my, thank you very much. We've learned so much about Christian marriage because they really had no role models for Christian marriages and they were keen to learn. And we were there, so they learned from us. And, uh, and we developed quite a, a strong relationship and they were getting married. And so I gave him $20 American dollars for a wedding ring for his wife. And, uh, and then a day or two later, a mutual friend, Bob, said to me, Johan is so, so thankful for your gift. And I said, well, if Johan is so thankful for the gift, why doesn't he thank me himself? And he said, that is, Bob said, in this culture, if you're really thankful, you thank through a mediator. And in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, every blessing comes to you through a mediator. And so whatever trials and difficulties you're experiencing, whatever joys are your lot in life, never, ever receive any of them except as you receive them with Christ. Alec Matira, commentator, he, he said it this way, and I think it's just beautiful. He said, the totality of your life ought to be surveyed from Mount Calvary. And so what you need to do as a Christian is always find yourself climbing Mount Calvary and looking at everything from that perspective. Because the Father gives you nothing except as he gives it to you with Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because the Father wants to honor the Son. The Father loves His Son. He doesn't want His Son to be bypassed in any way. Even though His Son has done all His work on the earth, He doesn't want His Son to be unemployed, to just be sitting around doing nothing. No, every grace that comes to you comes to you through His Son because the Father wants you to think Christ. And to have the Lord Jesus as the absolute center of your existence so that you don't move, you don't breathe, you don't do anything except as you think of the great love of God the Father displayed in the great love of Christ the Son. God did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, and he will now also with him graciously give us all things. You'll notice in the verse before that the Apostle Paul asked this question, what then shall we say to these things? And I think the answer is that we say nothing. Some of you might say nothing because it means nothing to you. You don't know why, as my friend in Scotland would say, you don't know why you rattle on all the time about Jesus Christ. You don't understand why people would give their lives for him. You don't, you don't get why people love the Savior, why it uh, grips them with such joy and unspeakable wonder, because he doesn't mean anything to you. He doesn't move you. He's not interesting. He's, he's, he's just a bore. 
You, you don't think anything about what he has done. So what are you going to say? Nothing. Nothing to say, really. That's a bad place to be in, really. To say nothing because of disinterest. Because of indifference. Because you don't find anything really impressive about Christ. And the antidote to that is to think impressively about Christ. To marvel at the sheer wonder and glory to understand who you are as a sinner deserving God's wrath and, and to think then that, that God could destroy me, but instead he destroyed his son. Marvelous. But silence really is the right answer for those who marvel. Because what do you say to these things? How do you wrap your mind around it? How how do you even think about these things, let alone say anything about it? Because it's so so, uh, dumbfounding. It leaves you gobsmacked. What do you say? It's just sheer wonder. It's just unthinkable in its glory. It's marvelous as you reflect upon it. That God would punish him instead of punishing me when he's the one who was fully devoted to his will, and I am just an abject failure. What do you say? Remember the the hymn, And when I think that God his Son not sparing sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin. What shall we say? How about nothing? Just bow before him in joyful worship. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, it is so marvelous, so wonderful what you have done for us in Jesus Christ that you, out of love, compassion did not spare your own son and instead you gave him up for us all we worship you for that we marvel and we pray that you would forgive us for ever thinking evil of you forever wondering whether you loved us at all and that uh, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ would be the touchstone of your love, that it would be unforgettable, even as it is thoroughly inexplicable. We pray for those saints who are struggling, who are burdened, who are weary, who feel overwhelmed, who feel lost, who feel alone. We pray that you would open their eyes that you would grant them strength that they might climb the hill called Calvary, and that from there they would look at the rest of their lives and know that you are for them because you have given your Son as demonstration of that. And so nothing else can be against them. So minister to us all, we pray, by your word and spirit, Refresh us so then as we go about our duties this week, as we hear the 
results of the election. Perhaps hear disappointing news as we read the other news and become so confused and frustrated. We pray, our God, that you would uh, give us joy in you and in your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.